The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. This morning we get to continue in our series in Colossians. Um, last week Sean preached Colossians 2, 6, and 7. This week I'll be picking up and preaching chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Um, as we continue our journey through this letter written by the Apostle Paul. Our series is entitled, Christ Over Everything. So let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love for us, and just the opportunity we had this morning to meditate on that love for us. Uh, We desire, Lord to be increasingly shaped by your love. We desire to be increasingly shaped by your word. Even this morning as we get into this passage which warns us about things uh, that can draw us away from you and from your love, we pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear. You give us hearts to respond to your word this morning. You'd, uh, You'd cause that we would grow in wisdom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So let's read then from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. This is God's living and holy word. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The problem with Christians is that they're too close-minded. I figure you've probably heard that before. Probably not exactly those words, but certainly the gist. And I'm guessing that even if you call yourself a Christian, a significant number of you have said something like that before, at least thought it about other Christians. I know I have, and that's not something to be proud of. Or maybe for others of you, that very thought is one of the reasons why you struggle with that label Christian and and putting it on yourself. You're uncomfortable with identifying with some of the things that come with it. So, is the criticism warranted? Are Christians too close-minded? Well, I think that depends on what specifically we're talking about. And generalities are often unhelpful. So, let me narrow the focus of the question to a substantial issue. How should we as Christians posture ourselves living in a society where there's so many ideas about God and so many thoughts about what what a life worth living looks like? How open should we be as Christians to incorporating the teachings and practices of others into our lives? That was one of the questions that was facing the the Colossian church. Just like them, we live among people with many different ideas about spiritual realities and many different practices. But this young church was not just facing that question when they stepped out into the marketplace. They were facing it when they gathered together when they were eating meals in each other's homes. 
it seemed to have been the case that alongside the gospel, there were other ideas being taught by people that were among them. And these believers, like most people, wanted to grow spiritually. There were then, and there still are, some attractive notions around us, aren't they? Suppose there's something to them. Shouldn't we spend more time evaluating them? They didn't want to miss out on teaching that would be helpful to them. But how were they to evaluate what was good for them and what they should avoid? How open-minded should they have been? How open-minded should we be? The Apostle Paul wrote to help this young, small-town church to navigate the complex world of ideas that they lived in. And this passage is a gift from God to us, meant to help us to navigate the world that we live in also. Last week, Sean preached verses 6 and 7 so wonderfully. And in those verses, Paul encourages us to dig deeper into and be built up in the faith, the teaching about Jesus. Now, Paul warns us to take great care with other teachings around us and, and even in our midst. He wants us to understand that there are, in fact, ideas and practices that we should close our minds to. How to identify them and why we should avoid them. The British author G.K. Chesterton, who was a believer, wisely observed the following in his autobiography. Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Paul, in caring for these believers, wanted them to know that they already had something solid. They already had the only thing in the world that is solid. They had Jesus. They were in him. They already had all that they needed. Now, instead of gobbling up the tantalizing teaching all around them, they needed to keep their mouths closed and continue to chew on what they had received in Jesus. And what was true for them is true for us if we are in him. So the big idea then in this passage, the big idea for this sermon this morning is this. Great care must be taken to avoid teaching that detracts from Christ because we have all that we need in him. Great care must be taken to avoid teaching that detracts from Christ because we have all that we need in him. This morning, as we think through this passage together, seeking to understand the nature of the strong warning being given here and how we can respond to it, here are two questions that are going to guide us on our way. What are we to be on our guard against? And why can we confidently avoid it? Let me give you those again. What are we to be on our guard against? And why can we confidently avoid it? So what we're going to do is we're just going to be thinking through these questions as we walk through this passage. So let's begin then with that first one. What is this passage commanding us to be on our guard against? So imagine that you're visiting me at my home on a particularly wonderful day and you decided you want to take a walk around the neighborhood. Just as you reach my gate, I shout out to you, be careful, watch out. What should your first question be? I figure it should be, watch out for what? A warning which does not specify the danger is of little use. It can cause you to become agitated, but it can't actually protect you. Now, it could be that the road surface is uneven. In fact, it is almost certain that the road surface is uneven. So if you're walking around and your head is in the air and you're enjoying the day, you might stumble in one of our friendly neighborhood potholes. It could be that there's a particularly unfriendly dog 
a few houses down and maybe I need to tell you which house it is so that you can walk on the other side of the road and keep your eyes on the gate until you're clear of that house. It could be that recently there's been a series of kidnappings where a white station wagon pulls up and bundles an unsuspecting victim into the car and speeds off. Now, if that were the case, I'd be a very bad friend to allow you to walk around the neighborhood. But suppose that when you inquired about what I was warning you about, I came close to you and in a near whisper I said, Ideas, they're all around us. They're trying to get us. What might happen at that point is you might actually take your walk, discreetly circle back and get into your car and drive away and not come back. Ideas can seem harmless, can't they? I mean, how could something so intangible actually be dangerous? But they can be dangerous. Apparently, one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to this little church in Colossae was because he heard that there was some teaching being circulated by someone in their community that was a clear and present danger. Paul wanted these believers and us, by extension, to feel the danger. So he employed language in this passage that evokes the image of being kidnapped and made a slave. Being kidnapped by teaching. Being kidnapped by a system of thought. You see, what you believe and practice... Uh, let me say that again. You see, what you believe and the practice it demands of you is not just something that you own. It owns you. And the fact that this teaching was right in their midst and being peddled by someone in their community under the guise of truth heightened the danger. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a fellow believer latch on to some idea or some teaching and adopt some new practice, and the full extent of their rationale when they're asked about it is, well, I learned it from so-and-so, and they're a Christian. God wants to shake us out of that kind of naivety. Be on your guard. Take great care. That idea of see to it that no one, is, it's a warning. It, it, you can translate that, be on your guard. But what does it look like to take such a posture? Have you ever watched a movie or a TV show where there's a group of people that's in danger from some monster or some mysterious force or some person who's trying to harm them? And there's usually this character who's paranoid and freaks out at everything. You know? So you realize in those shows that person tends to die first. You know, there's some dramatic scene where they're backing away from the thing and then they just get e eaten by it, you know. It's pretty consistent, the way they write them. It seems that even though they're acutely aware of the danger, that awareness does not function to protect them because it's not trained and focused on spotting the actual source of danger. The hero, on the other hand, is usually the person who understands the nature of the danger and knows precisely how to respond to it and leads any others who are willing who will listen to them to safety. So they're like, stay still. Don't look it in the eyes. Okay, run now. While Paul is not equipping us to be the hero of our own story, it is a helpful picture of the type of vigilance that's going to serve us. What this passage calls for is not a hunkering down or a panicking and freaking out. It's an informed vigilance, not a general worrisomeness. The vigilance we're called to is one that understands how the danger presents itself, how to identify it, and where our refuge is found. When Paul identifies the danger as philosophy in verse 8, he's not using the word in the more limited sense that we tend to use it now. 
He was talking about the way regular people think about life and the world and God and spiritual realities and therefore how they approach seeking their happiness and well-being. And it was probably the case that Paul was using the term because it was the name the false teachers gave to their teaching. But the other descriptions he attaches to this philosophy highlight the danger. It's deceptive. It shouldn't surprise you much that no one stands on a street corner shouting out, false teaching, get your false teaching here. No, if you're going to catch someone with a lie, it has to appear true. It has to seem reasonable. False teaching seems so reasonable to so many people, but it's deceptive. It promises much, but does not deliver on those promises ultimately. Every day in this world, thousands of people are taken in by all kinds of schemes. And maybe at some point in your life, you have been conned in some small or some significant way. Do you realize that none of us sets out to be deceived? Yet we can be. Different people are susceptible to different deceptions. F.F. Bruce helps us to see why these believers might have been particularly attracted to this false teaching that was on offer in their setting. He says, The spiritual confidence tricksters did not inculcate a godless or immoral way of life. The error of such teaching would have been readily exposed. Their teaching was rather a blend of the highest elements of religion known to Judaism and paganism. It was one which seduces believers from the simplicity of their faith in Christ. False teaching is also empty. It may come in wonderful packaging and those who peddle it may be personable, intelligent, warm and attractive, but it offers nothing that will profit us fundamentally. Did you catch Paul's wordplay going on in verses 8 and 9? Listen to it again. See to it that no one takes you captive by empty deceit. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We haven't quite reached there yet. But the contrast is meant to help us to see why we can confidently avoid so many ideas out there. If Jesus is the fullness, then anything that is not leading us into him must be empty. All that it can offer is null and void. What we're in danger of being captivated by, being captured by, is deceptive and it's empty. But how can we identify it? Paul helped this church identify the false teaching they were facing by describing three traits of it. Firstly, it was according to human tradition. The problem is in the tradition part, you know. Right before this in verse 5 of chapter 2, and you can glance at that, Paul is rejoicing in their good order. They were regimented in the right way as a church. In verse 7, he wants them to be established in the faith. He was commending a tradition to them. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says to another church, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word, or by our letter. The problem was the source of the tradition. It's human tradition. Now, if you're going to reckon with Christianity, if you're going to be served by your faith as a believer, you have to come face to face with the fact that our faith comes from a heavenly origin. We have been taught the truth of God, the truth of God through Jesus Christ, God's Son passed on to us faithfully by God's appointed representatives, including Paul, who wrote this letter. To consider Christianity or to live it as less than it claims to be is to waste your time and to play games. 
What the gospel says to us is that we were helpless to save ourselves. We lack the knowledge, the power, and the means. So it doesn't matter how many thousands of years old a tradition is. It doesn't matter what continent it started on. Once the selling point sounds anything like ancient spiritual insights and principles, take great care to avoid it. It cannot lead you to God or to spiritual well-being, whatever effect it has in the short term. And it will lead you away from Jesus and from the fullness we have in him. He will slowly but surely fade into the background instead of having the place of preeminence he rightly should have in our lives. Secondly, this false teaching was also based on elementary spirits of the world. Now, much ink has been spilt trying to get to the bottom of that phrase. One which is not actually used often in scripture. It's also used in the book of Galatians. Uh, I read quite a few pages this week trying to help myself, first of all, and to help us to get our, our hands around this one. It seems to be referring to teaching which emphasized how one needed to interact with the material world in order to advance spiritually. And gods and spirits were commonly associated with different parts of the material world. Uh, so in following the rules, the hope was to please or to pacify these deities or for them to mediate to God for us in order to thrive in our life. If that feels like a lot to digest, I'm right there with you, and I've been working on this for hours and hours. But here's how this helps us to navigate the world we live in. Any system of teaching that places an emphasis on finding spiritual well-being through how we interact with the physical world is going to lead you away from delighting in and depending on Jesus. And there are so many different teachings and practices uh, from so many different sources that do this. And there's so much out there that holds out empty promises of spiritual improvement. Rules that tell you what to eat to be holy or, or to, be harmon- to, to be in harmony with nature. How to breathe or clear your mind to center yourself. What to do to appease certain spirits like wearing particular, particular jewelry. And the list goes on and on. The third trait that Paul offers is perhaps the most helpful. The false teaching was not based on Christ. It's a common anecdote precisely because it's a useful one. Those who have been trained to recognize counterfeit bills don't focus on studying the forgeries. They spend their time getting to know every distinguishing characteristic of the real thing. Having detailed knowledge of the genuine article equips them to quickly spot a fake. For us as Christians, Jesus is the standard by which we judge everything else. But how reasonable is that? How can any reasonable person just kind of handpick Jesus from among the abundance of options then judge everything else by him? That leads us quite naturally to consider our second question. Why can we confidently avoid it? Why can we confidently avoid everything else around us? Why can we, without any anxiety, fully aware of the limitations of our own judgment and the impossibility of making a careful examination of everything that's around us, avoid everything that's not based on Christ, and confidently walk forward knowing that we're not missing out on anything. This passage provides us with some audacious answers to that question. When it says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Paul is taking the language of the false teachers and turning it against them. You see, they would say, Jesus is a great starter on your journey towards spiritual enlightenment. He's a wonderful appetizer. But you're going to need more if you're going to have the fullness. 
And we've prepared a feast for you. Paul says, Jesus is the fullness. The same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, was crucified, rose from the dead, and now is exalted at the right hand of the Father, is fully human and fully God. And further, these believers have been united with with Christ. They are in him. That language speaks of their intimate relationship with Jesus. And in him they have already received the fullness that the false teachers were claiming to offer. They were complete in Jesus. If they'd realized this, they'd be like people standing in front of a buffet of tantalizing false teaching, but lacking the appetite for any of it because they got there already full. Stuffed, in fact. There is absolutely zero chance that they could lack anything of value because they had Christ. Douglas Moo summarizes this well. All that human beings can know or experience of God is found in Christ. And so Christians, simply by virtue of being Christians, have access to all this knowledge and all these experiences. We need look nowhere else. If you have not put your faith in Christ, this is the Savior who offers himself to you today. He cries out to you with the words from Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So we judge everything else out there against Jesus and against the gospel. We can confidently avoid everything else. If some teaching doesn't line up with the truth of Jesus, we step right over it and we keep on walking. Full stop. We don't need to keep looking over our shoulders, wondering if we missed out on something. We already have the fullness in Jesus. We already have everlasting life. That's what it means to walk with gospel confidence. What this is calling us to is a deeper and deeper knowledge of the gospel. Think about recognizing counterfeit bills again. Do you realize that the central bank expects each of us to be able to recognize bills that are counterfeit? Those safety features are not just for the experts, you know, they're for us. In the same way, God gave us this passage so that we'd be able to spot and avoid false teaching. So how do we go about evaluating other ideas against the standard of the gospel? So what I want to do for the next few minutes is just to handpick a few things uh, to highlight, handpick a few ideas to highlight, and to think through what they teach and what they practice uh, these are some things that are in the mouths and in the lives of regular people around us, and I want you to just hold them up and compare them to Jesus. Um, there's a memorable tool that can help you to identify the tendencies of cults. A Christian cult is a religious group whose teaching and practice deviates significantly from the Christian faith. Remember verse 7 of this chapter. God's desire for us is that we should be established in the faith, a defined set of teachings passed on to us by the apostles. Many of the followers of cults are wonderful people, disciplined and productive citizens who love their families and serve their neighbors. A few years ago when I was in business, I had, it was like we were, we were playing religious bingo or something. I was just employing people from all over, Jehovah's Witnesses. It was, it was fascinating to just sit over lunch and have conversations. Um, but some of these guys, they were really wonderful people. I really, they're my friends to this day. Uh, I admire so many things about them. 
But you may have gotten a sense that something is wrong with these groups, but you may not know specifically what the problem is. What a cult group typically does is to take the faith and to add, subtract, multiply, or divide. So you should be able to remember that. That's a tool for you. Add, subtract, multiply, or divide. They add to God's revelation. The Bible is not sufficient in their opinion. You need other revelation. And guess what? They can provide it to you. So if you spend time talking to the Mormon missionaries that you'll see around, they'll start talking to you about the Bible and how good it is, but it's not sufficient. So eventually they're going to offer you the Book of Mormon and a few other books. Cults also subtract from the Godhead. Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is the first being that God created. They misunderstand that word firstborn in Colossians 1.15. And they believe that the Holy Spirit is not a person but an impersonal force. Therefore, Jesus and the Spirit are not to be worshipped. They multiply requirements for salvation. These cults will tell you that if you are to be saved, yes, you'll need faith in Jesus, but you also need to join their organization. And you'll need to get working if you're going to be saved. So beware of anybody who teaches you that faith plus works equals salvation. What the Bible teaches is that our works are the result of God's grace, a product of salvation. We do what pleases God because we already have been accepted by him, not in hopes of him accepting us. Finally, they divide. Cults claim to be the only ones with the truth. If you leave their organization, you're condemned. And everyone else, no matter their faithfulness to the Bible, is to be avoided. I found it fascinating sometimes interacting with people from these groups because they want to give me stuff, but they don't want to take anything from me. They want to invite me to a meeting, but they'll never come with me to a meeting. What's very concerning, though, is that there are some churches from denominations that would normally be considered orthodox who are taking on some of these tendencies of adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing. When we warn people about those who do this, it's not bad, man. The fullness is in Jesus. If we walk away from him, we can only lose and never gain. But there's much more to think through here. There are many ideas around us that offer a completely different take on spirituality, often from an Eastern background. And there are ideas which are even harder to pin down, but are clearly a part of popular thought. There's yoga, for example. Now, it must be said that many of us who grew up in the West could take better care of our bodies and would benefit from doing so. But yoga, as it was conceived by those who invented it, is not just a set of moves. It's a tangible expression of particular beliefs about our bodies and the world, including convictions about spiritual reality. So it's not surprising then that some of the local studios who offer yoga classes talk about yoga and its benefits in this kind of way. To, to experience an increase in physical, mental, and spiritual well-being and a deeper awareness of self. Yoga clears your mind. Yoga calms your soul. So how do we compare yoga to Christ? Here are a few thoughts. Remember that we are complete in Jesus. We have the fullness. He is our peace. According to the gospel, our real problem isn't that we are hurried and stressed and out of balance. Our problem is not that we are at odds with our bodies. It's that we are at odds with our creator. There's no stretch that can solve that. There's a massive difference between feeling a sense of well-being and knowing that you are right with God because of Jesus. Now, my job as a pastor is not to tell you which exercise classes you can attend, but my job is to remind you to take great care. 
Careful looks very different from carefree. Don't go skipping through the swamp. Be on your guard. Take time to evaluate things and determine whether and how you can pursue your satisfaction in Jesus as you pursue those things. Okay, how about Marie Kondo? Say it in so, Pastor Joe. Could you seriously be suggesting that there's anything sinister about the petite Japanese Mary Poppins who has floated down into our clutter and chaos with her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and has set us free from the shackles of materialism? Don't panic. All I'm saying is keep your gospel glasses on. If you're not familiar with Marie Kondo, she's a self-help guru from Japan who specializes in decluttering people's homes. And she's suddenly become very popular because of her book, and now she has a Netflix series which has taken off. I'm indebted in my analysis to Stephen McAlpine, an Australian pastor who has thought and wrote wonderfully about this. This is the introduction to Marie's book. In this book, I have summed up how to put your space in order in a way that will change your life forever. What Marie offers is a salvation narrative, isn't it? It reminds us that we all long for our lives to change. And it should remind us as believers that our lives already have changed forever. Even if we could seriously benefit from decluttering. What's wonderful about Marie Kondo is that she also reminds us that we are built to thrive in order. We sang about that this morning. We sang about God entering the chaos We've learned in Colossians 1 that in Christ, God is reconciling the universe to himself. He's bringing everything back into order. One of the more unusual practices that Maria encourages is thanking your possessions for how they serve you, particularly before, they dis- before you discard them. Now, that's quirky, but is it a problem? Well, the problem is, is that's, that's not gratitude. What the Bible teaches, and we saw this last week in the passage we looked at, what the Bible teaches is that our lives should be overflowing with thanksgiving to God, who is the giver of all good gifts. Marie certainly reminds me that I should be grateful all the time, but I don't want to diminish Jesus by thanking my sneakers instead of him. As we walk through the world with gospel lenses on, we'll see that we're not just going to find things we ought to reject, but we'll also see things which are echoes of the truth that we're walking in each day. And those things will bring us joy. But the point is, we see both the danger and the delight when we evaluate things based on Jesus. We live in the age of self. Self Self-actualization, self-care, self-compassion. It's the age of mindfulness and meditation tapes and life coaching. A friend of mine a couple months ago sent me an exercise routine that he wanted me to try. And early on in the document was this inspirational quotation. There is nothing outside yourself that can ever enable you to, be, to get better, stronger, richer, quicker, or smarter. Everything is within. Everything exists. Seek nothing outside yourself. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you'll realize I'm not a particularly dramatic person. And I hope that helps you to hear me clearly when I say this. That idea is demonic. Believing that will keep you from Christ or from enjoying the blessings we have as we are rooted and built up, not in ourselves, but in him. Paul David Tripp counsels, the wise man is afraid of the delusions of human strength. Because those delusions will keep him from seeking the grace of Christ. Let me read that one for you again. 
The wise man is afraid of delusions of human strength because those delusions will keep him from seeking the grace of Christ. Take great care. Jesus is the antidote to false teaching, even though it has the potential to appeal to us at such a deep level. And when we avoid it, it's not just that we're dodging. It's that we're satisfied. We're complete. But there's more. We're safe. You see, spiritual forces are real. Hollywood seems more and more in love with horror films these days. But perhaps that morbid fascination is betraying what lies under the surface of our modern culture, which rarely ever acknowledges the existence of anything spiritual, anything that we can't quantify with science. Mike Cosper has a wonderful book just on Christians and relating to the media and film and TV in particular. It's called The Stories We Tell. And he has a chapter on horror films, which is fascinating. Here's a quotation from it. Somehow we know that the shadows are hiding something. Powers and persons that we can't see or comprehend are at work. But somehow we intuit them. That intuition works itself out in our imaginations. And we tell stories that try to explain what we feel. And comfort us from the fear of the shadows. Our passage this morning ends with the assurance that we who are in Christ are safe from the things that lurk in the shadows. We don't need a blessing or a bath from the obium man. We don't need to kill a chicken or sprinkle rum when we're building a home. We don't need to wear a charm to protect us or to repeat a psalm to ward off Satan. Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. He made everything that exists, including demonic forces. And what we learn next week down in verse 15 of this chapter is that he triumphed over them by his death on the cross. The false teachers have nothing to offer us. There is nothing out there that compares to Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in the man, Jesus. He rules over all other powers. And we are complete in him. Let us therefore be vigilant and not be swindled by those who would entice us with inferior substitutes for him. And let us recognize that even these verses encourage us towards a greater pursuit of Jesus. Our Savior is the antidote to false teaching, not just because we see the truth and, and error in reference to him. He's the antidote because when we are satisfied in him, everything else loses its appeal. So let us determine by God's grace to feed on him who is the fullness. Let's behold him in his word. Let's sing of him. Let's cry out to him for a stronger appetite for him. Let's give thanks to him continually. And as we walk in him joyfully, let's beware of anything that would detract from him, that would diminish his glory, supplant our dependence on him, distract from our pursuit of him, or rob us of our satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Truly, Jesus, your love is all we need. But truly, Lord, we confess that we often do not believe that, Lord. We live as if we don't believe that, Lord. Uh, As circumstances change, our contentment shifts, Lord. Our contentment weakens. Uh, As trials come, Lord, we, we worry and we wonder, are you there? Will you meet us? As we walk through suffering, Lord, we wonder if you care about us. Help us, Lord, to grow in our awareness, deep in our hearts, that your love is all we need. Help us, Lord, 
to, to be aware of the many ideas around us um, that, that often come along and suggest another source of strength to, to us, suggest another source of satisfaction to us. Guard our steps, Lord, even as we grow in wisdom, even as we grow in our appreciation and, and understanding of the gospel so that we can think in gospel terms and see with gospel eyes. Lord, we pray that our satisfaction in you would increase even as we walk through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we've spoken of pursuing our satisfaction in Jesus. And communion is one of the ways that we do that as believers. We take bread, which reminds us of his body broken for us. And we take wine, which reminds, of, reminds us of his blood shed for us. And we eat and drink them. This feast dec- You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.